Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. I'm with Thea Lenarducci, cultural critic and canine companion. That's me. It is that's my alliteration for the day. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. How's Alf? Uh, he is well. He's good. I'm still kind of really, I don't think we've ever fully stopped to consider the moment you just said he's a he, bit of a dick. Yeah. Do you regret, I, I, I saw you tweet about it, you regretted that, didn't you? Well... I mean, it, it was a bit unfair of me. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is he 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 is a bit of a dick, but it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's not all his fault that he's no, a dick. It's, ve- it's very little of it is his fault. He's so many, had a maybe that's true of many people. Terrible past. Yeah, he's he's the, here to teach me important lessons. Maybe we should need more understanding generally. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Anyway, I knew I knew that you didn't. I knew that you didn't mean it. It came with love, didn't it? It did. It did. It came from the best possible place. Right. I'm trying to help him be less dickish. Be the better dog. <laughs> It's dog or food, really, isn't it? That's how. That's that's. that's I mean, that's we should my just, repertoire. Yeah, we should just do a podcast on dogs and food. <laughs> dog food. Oh yeah, that's our ideal sponsor. <laughs> Why haven't we thought to I tap know. that market? Come on, come on. All right, we'll do that. If any, if any dog food manufacturers <laughs> care to advertise on this uh, podcast, there is a literary dog food manufacturer, uh, PG Woodhouse, uh, the elder son of Lord Emsworth. I think marries into a dog biscuit fortune. Oh, that fortune. rings a bell. Yeah, and it's sort of it's, it's sort of it's the epitome of sort of commercialism. Yeah, the dog yeah. The dog biscuit fortune. Yeah, I thought you meant in the real world there no. was a literary dog maker, no, dog no, food maker. I'm not interested in the, in the real world. <laughs> uh, and nor is anyone at the TLS. And if you like that sort of thing, you should be subscribing to us and use this special offer code that dash tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. It's the best price anywhere on the internet. Five issues for five pounds or five dollars. Coming up this week, Ben Markovitz has been reading an important book from his childhood featuring dwarves, spells and rolls of the dice. Yep, it's about time the TLS took on Dungeons and Dragons. Ben is now a novelist but was a basketball player and wrote a lovely piece about the tragic death of Kobe Bryant last week, so we'll also talk to him about that. Speaking of major figures, we'll also consider Tolstoy. Carol Emerson has been reading more introductions to his life, work and thought and has some conclusions. Plus, who was Eve Babbitts? Megan Mars has all of the answers.
In January 1851, Tolstoy recorded this diary entry. I've fallen in love, or imagine that I have. Went to a party and lost my head. Bought a horse, which I don't need at all. We've all done things like that. As Carol Emerson makes clear this week, Tolstoy did have a head for horses. 30 years later, he wrote an allegorical tale in which they have all the diversity and caprice of the human herd. There was plenty of diversity and caprice in the author himself. His pride about his religious fervour, but his distaste for the church, his collar and his hilarity, his privilege and his revolutionary thought. This capaciousness, this mingling of his art plots, life plots and ethical schemata makes him perennially relevant. He is, says Carol, the best channel imaginable for the most urgent question we face today, which is this. How should our ideas relate to our lived life? That's a lot of responsibility for an author, even a great one to bear. Does Tolstoy, on further examination, live up to it? Carol Emerson has reviewed the essential stories of Tolstoy and two new introductions to his work by Lisa Knapp and Andre Zorin. And she joins Thea and me now. Carol, hello. Hello. Um, one of the books is called Essential Stories. What is an essential story of, of Tolstoy, do you think? Well, I basically paraphrase what Boris Dvaluk says, which is got to deal with something that obsessed him in his, his entire life and must deal with how we deal with death. That's a strange sort of requirement, given that Tolstoy is one of the few world-class authors who can really do joy wonderfully. It's much easier to do tragedy wonderfully because it makes us feel serious, important, and elevated. But Tolstoy could do joy, and yet near the end of his life, there was so little of it reflected. So I think an essential Tolstoy story tells you how you can get a certain amount of spiritual joy out of dying. But it is connected with death nonetheless, even though you feel that the, the joy is there, it's not wrong to, to focus on to focus on not in the least not in the least it means coming to terms with the fact that you are mortal and for an intelligence like Tolstoy's and as I think also you just summarized expertly my position here a very robust responsible personality he will not outsource anything that is never will Tolstoy say you made me do it that's a common thing nowadays and he won't do that but Balancing against that robust and responsible sense of self, there's this rapaciousness and omnivorousness. He eats every other self up. That is, can't sort of just be himself. And I guess what I have to say to that is that one can accomplish a great deal if one assumes that every person is the same. Every person really wants what I want. And he did believe that. And I think that's the source of his great strength. Even though he said every, he said happy people were like that, but uh, unhappy people were different in in every way. Yes, but I think if he was really pushed to the wall, what he would say is that an unhappy person can become happy if they follow my advice. You see, he wasn't like <laughs> he wasn't lacking in self confidence, is what you're saying, Carol. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but again, the oddness of it is, it's a sliding scale. That is, he's perfectly confident and assertive about what he believes in and then suddenly he'll have a change his confession's wonderful that way because it's totally stratified you know he idealistically and naively goes into a new phase and believes it very strongly and gives himself wholly to it emotionally and spiritually and then discredits it blackens his past goes on to the next phase so these things are like palimpsests you know sort of histological slices and uh, it's a very immodest way of looking at your life, and it's a very cruel way to consider yourself as a living organism. He was really merciless, so he's not vain in the usual ways. 
does that make him easy to write about? Because you're reading two very sh- well. One's called a very short introduction, and the other one is also a short introduction. Does his yeah. life respond to that sort of summary? Because it's a long life. It's oh. a life filled with all sorts of things. It's it's a terrifically hard question and a very good one. No, it's very hard to read about Tolstoy. I've been doing it for half a century, and each time <laughs> I read a new version, it gets harder. And that's Again, because he didn't have a whole lot of things happen to him the way, say, Dostoevsky did, you know, get sentenced to death, get sent to Siberia, have, you know, grand mal epilepsy. Those are events. Tolstoy made an event by deciding what it was we should do and then taking it away, you know, saying you shouldn't do it. <laughs> this is a strange definition of an event. And so it really depends on how you weigh the evidence and how you weigh the words, because he never never stopped talking about how he failed at first, when I saw the title that you gave it, I felt, oh, my God, that's so disrespectful to Tolstoy bringing him down. Yeah. And then I thought, no, he's been bringing himself down every time he opens his mouth. He really wants to bring himself down, but he really wants you to build yourself up again according to his most recent view. In the last 30 years, he really had one view. I mean, he he evolved a worldview that was very strong and very difficult to access, but... Uh, this is the it's religious. This is the religious no. crisis that that that, that talked about this of eighteen eighty. That's right, or at least that foregrounded it. Right, I think it was always there that he felt there was somehow a single truth. He just wasn't sure what it was, and uh, you know his wife thinks he's crazy, and he thinks he's seeing the light. And the real issue then is to how to care more about the light than you care about your wife. And I'm afraid that's what he did. Oh, did he? Um, yeah. He very much, he very much cared about his family. Uh, I'm a little harsh there too. I think, not maybe a diapering dad, but a lot of dads aren't diapers. He. Uh, <laughs> they should be. There. They should. They should be there, Carol. They should be, but you know, this is the 19th century. Yeah, you got a hundred right. servants to do all that, and he did a lot more than a lot of men. His position, still, he loved the idea of carnal continuity of family, and he was as present as most men, again, of aristocratic mindset were in that period. But I think the problem with the husband and wife was that she adored him and his task and had given 25 years of her life to furthering it, and he no longer needed her. The issue wasn't love. The issue was need. He needed to go away. And she said, you go away, I'll kill myself. And he wasn't going to have that on his soul. And Didn't she have to type so. up War and Peace about 11 times? I mean, she was sort of... Yeah, she oh, was yeah sort of, seven it... times. Seven times she wrote it through. And she, <laughs> you know, just like Dostoevsky's wife, not just wrote it through, but I mean, sort of suggested things, you know, uh, deciphered things in her own way. <laughs> These wives are amazing and uh, devoted. And so if the husband outlives the wife in terms of worldview was really what it was. She was willing to serve him, but she just couldn't believe his worldview was the right one. That's very hard because uh, she was a, a servitor by nature and a powerfully generous and stubborn person herself. Can we just go back to the, the religious conversion? Things with him and Sonia got harder and harder uh-huh. um, and the religious conversion was obviously a big moment in that. But what triggered that religious conversion? Was it his experience of war? No, that war actually was in the 50s, the Crimean War. What it really was, I think, was his experience of finishing Anna Karenina, which he came to despise. He wrote that in the 1870s, 72 to 77, and, uh, of course, had to experience being serialized. 
and he just felt that you know one more infidelity novel about uh, upper class life was repellent to him and there was also a maturation of what i can only call his you know, midlife crisis maybe <laughs> uh william james called it a an hodini which means a sort of ability to get no pleasure out yeah. of anything that you do and I think a more, how can I say, capricious and skeptical person would say he just had, you know, he'd been successful for too long. And uh, Did he know how great Anna Karenina was? Did he finish, because it's one of those things that, I mean, would, would he finish that and think, well, that's going to stand forever, you know, that's that's <laughs> that's one of the great things that's ever been written. I think, you know, another good comment, I think he knew what was great in terms of a work of art. He even knew Kuritsu Sonata was great. Haji Murat, these mm. are all works that are powerfully, um, shall we say, compromised morally, according to his doctrine. But the fact that he could produce a perfect work of art, he felt he had to invest that aesthetic perfection in forms that were morally more efficient. And that's why he began writing parables. And he'd always been interested in education, but massively starts his own printing press to try to get people reading the right sorts of work. He just felt, you know, novels being read by lazy people about more lazy and lecherous people was not what the world needed. And it was because he was good at it, because he knew that his art infected others. If it was bad art, you just shrug it off, but it's great art. That was sort of his albatross. Yeah, precisely, precisely. That was what was hanging around his neck, precisely because he knew he was a genius. And this, again, is the sort of weirdness of his modesty and his self-dethroning, if you like, Uh, if he was less powerful and if he knew he was not as powerful as he was, then he would be less self-critical. So he could have, do you feel that these these, these are always kind of invidious uh, arguments to make, but he presumably had a couple more great novels in him? He had a couple more great works in him. I don't know if he would ever have gone back to novels. He did, of course, Resurrection at the end of the century, but he went back on his vow never to make money from his fiction because he wanted to help finance the Dukhobor's transit to Canada. So there were practical reasons why he needed cash. I mean, he had a lot of capital, but not so much cash. And uh, that was why he went back on this plan not to basically get rich from what he wrote on the fiction front. But he had great works. He wanted to do a much larger theological treatise that combined, you know, what he thought Jesus said with his own confession, with the way he read other sacred texts. But but that would be, I mean, I guess my point is, that's one thing, and he wants to go into that realm, but surely, imagine if he'd written a novel about domestic life, about infidelity, another novel, you know, he's done War Uh and Peace, he's done Anna Karenina, you know, he's taken on the sort of the the interrelations of people, done it majestically. Right. I mean, I, I don't particularly want him to do a lengthy theological treatise about Jesus. I want him to write another novel. But that's yeah, his but that's not what he wants you to want. Oh, yeah, but he's wrong. It's better, is it not? It's better. Is it? it would have been <laughs> better. It would have been better if he'd written, written another novel, surely. Imagine well, another. Now, surely, well, now, surely what he did write was Kreutzer Sonata, which is a pretty yeah. good domestic yeah. novel yeah. and pretty long and pretty awful. And there's large <laughs> amounts, large amounts of yeah. the didactic Tolstoy in that. And if you know something about the history of that little novella, he wrote it and people got, of course, 
frantically upset about it. And then he wrote a postlude and said, well, you think it's just Posnischer saying that? No, I'm saying it, and here's why I'm saying it. (laughs) So uh, you can just kiss your novel goodbye. I mean, you know, novelists are supposed to have a certain distance from their productions, and that was not the way Tolstoy was moving. You know, he, again, wants to have things from his own voice, but he was so ashamed of his own voice so much of the time. So he didn't really know how to how to get a, a narrative security, I think, near the end, too. When he died, um, there were an, a number of unfinished projects. One of them, uh, you you mentioned, a long story titled There Are No Guilty People in the World. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, was that complete but sort of not, not drafted to the point that he would have wanted it to be? What, what do we know about that work? How much is there to read? You know, you know one never knows about these things. With the, the archive of great writers in a censored state... Because Tolstoy, although he was far too great to be arrested and pilloried the way he desperately wanted to be. I love that point you make in this. Yeah, he wanted to be a revolutionary, <laughs> but no one would arrest him. <laughs> Nobody was that dumb. Nobody was that dumb. Because that would have made him irresistible the way it made Christ irresistible. He couldn't stand the fact that he wasn't asked to answer for it, and all of his disciples were. So that they wouldn't do. But there is a certain amount of self-censorship, and it isn't only Tolstoy. That is, he wants first of all, to write what will shock you, but not shock you in such a way that you won't follow it, you know. And then he did have protectors in high places, people who let him get through with stuff, even against their own censors, like, for instance, Tsar Alexander III. He had people who adored him, and he was very ambivalent about that, being adored. He didn't want to lose that audience. But on the other hand, he wanted to teach it something. So a lot of things, like Haji Murat was published posthumously in a huge number of stories. He was trying to both come to peace with his own sense of what the readership would bear. And he was, again, a genius, and he understood the pedagogical trajectory of readers. You know, he wanted them to begin getting interested in something which would sort of spark their attention, and then they would be slowly moved over into considering views which they thought were just routine and self-evident as being as being wrong. As you can tell from my review, I'm no great fan of the death of Ivan Ilyich. I think no. it's a cruel story. And I think there are other stories where he gives you that twist of, oh, yeah, I'm reading Tolstoy, and I thought I thought this, but now I know I think this other thing, and this other thing is better. Tolstoy wants you to do the learning right sitting over his text. He's, it's and, a- he does it, and he does it in Master and Man. He does it in Haji Murat, and on completely un- unwelcome material. You can't believe he's doing this on these terrorists, you know, on these murderous tribes, and yet he does it in such a spiritually elevated way. So he was experimenting ways of revealing the reader's best self to the reader. Uh, and it was it was enormously ambitious in my view, and still fictional, but not in the way that Anna Karenik could, could teach us anything anymore. And the paradoxes um, that you bring out throughout are, um, are very clear. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, one very quick question. Would it have been nice to go for a, go for a meal with? <laughs> you and Tolstoy, what would it have been like? Because I've really oh, got God. a sense of your, your view of it, you know, what oh. comes out, what seeps out of this conversation and this review. You he would have told you of... you're eating too much, you're well, wearing the wrong clothes. <laughs> Yeah, Carol, you've devoted fifty. You've devoted five decades of your life to thinking about him. Would he have been? What would he have been like? Well, of course, Tolstoy didn't have any teeth from the age of. <laughs> One of the reasons he never smiled was his teeth all fell out, like most people's teeth in the nineteenth century, and so he looks much grimmer than he was. Apparently, he laughed a lot, and even though he didn't like to be photographed laughing because of his mouth not having many teeth, and my feeling is he just listened to Tolstoy, let him laugh. Like most older people, and I assume 
you mean I should talk to Tolstoy in his final, say, two decades? Like most older people, they can be marvelously entertaining if you don't distract them. So I would ask him, you know, what he asked his whole life to all of us, namely, what should we do and what do you live by? And he'd have something to say. Well, that would be a conversation worth overhearing. Carol Emerson, what a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thank you so much indeed. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. It's great, that, isn't it? Uh, isn't it amazing? Because I hadn't really thought about, because you don't think about this, I hadn't really thought about the chronology of his books and his life. But Anna Karenina comes out in 1870-something, and then he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Great, 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 as in as great as a novel again. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's kind of crazy, isn't it? The crisis was a sort of uh, book ending. Yeah, between and that sort of crisis in 1878 and 18, yeah. yeah. And then he lives for 20-odd more years. Yeah. But having written... One of the great books ever. It's, just yeah. sort of, it's amazing that he writes War and Peace and Anna Karenina and not another major novel. That's a bit sad, isn't it? Well, it is, I suppose, yeah. But, you know, you've got to be grateful for what you've oh, got, Steve. Oh, no, there we go. Optimism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Well, stop feeling sorry about time. My, feel- my mind is just still at the table with Carol and Tolstoy, to be honest. I'm just imagining you know that. I was get- sort of trying to picture what kind of restaurant they'd be in. Well, or- I'm now imagining him eating just soup. And his yeah, bit. And also. The bit, look at the cover of the TLS. He had a yeah. bit. He had a beard. Yeah. He had a proper beard. He I had, like I had an Uncle George with a beard quite no. similar. I did, yeah. You don't see those. Even hipsters don't have beards like that now, do they? <laughs> and I don't like hipsters, as you know. <laughs> yes, as I know. Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, what a bit. The cover is well worth looking at. It's a lovely, weird picture of, uh, of Tolstoy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I was growing up, the adventure game Dungeons & Dragons was for a sort of owlish, glowering, self-secluding geek. They sat in stuffy rooms on warm days, seemingly debating things like the magical powers of Orgoth the Wizard from the realm of Dagyar. Sure, I liked Tolkien and Terry Pratchett, but I wasn't quite one of them. Well, the uber-athletic non-geek, or is he? Ben Markovitz was, and as part of our re-reading series, he's chosen the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook. 
from 1978. From the cover, which includes a heap of slain crocodile thingies still spilling blood, to its writing style pitched perfectly to adolescent nerds, it recalls instantly his childhood in the 1980s. Ben is nostalgic but realistic about his experience of the books. Dwarves tended to have a lot of treasure, he says, so we fought a lot of dwarves. This rule-based world, he argues, was less of a creative beginning for an aspiring writer than a training ground for lawyers. So why did it mean so much to him? He joins us now. Ben, I don't know how familiar people will be with Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, are, I you, kind of, I, are you familiar with Dungeons & Dragons? Did you grow up playing it? I grew up watching people play it, Ben, and uh, there's a certain geekiness that I attributed to them, which we'll get to. But for people who did Thea, in Italy? Uh, yeah, yeah, it definitely existed. I did it past I mean, it, well, I didn't do it. Girls didn't do it. Did you, get, you, get, had, get, you had passive D&D. Yeah, girls. hailed other people. What D&D percentage spoke. of girls do you think did it in your experience, Ben? Uh, I was part of... Well, my sisters did it. I forced my younger sisters to do uh, it. They, they loved it. Okay, give us an explanation. What is it? It's basically an elaborate form of pretend in which you adopt characters who are defined by characteristics that you have to roll up on dice and you play according to complicated books of rules that allow you to become a magician or a soldier or a thief, and you try to fight dragons and gain treasure and become more experienced. And do, do you create the characters, or do you sort of draw from a repertoire of existing? Is a bit a... of both. There's a repertoire, and actually the book I talk about has these great descriptions of the sorts of types that belong with each character class. I, 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 that, even though I didn't play it, it's familiar. It, you will write in the realm of, of kind of high Tolkien and sort of fantasy, those books where you um, uh, where you could choose your own adventure. There's that whole tone of, of slightly Baroque prose here, isn't there? That's right. It's, it's very Tolkien-influenced. There are a whole other range of... I, I used to read the Dragonlance books, yeah. which were actually put out by the company that made Dungeons & Dragons, and they hired a couple of people to write these novels based on the world that they had created which were kind of great. I really got a lot of pleasure out of those books. Uh, and why was Dungeons & Dragons important to you, to you, Ben? You look back on it, it clearly was. It was clearly like a big feature of, of your childhood. It was. I mean, it, it was a chance to pretend that you were somebody cooler and more powerful than you were, but mostly it was just hanging around with a bunch of friends and having some kind of structure to the you know the crap that you were talking about. <laughs> I, I mean, I... We all need that. <laughs> I... Um, <laughs> I sort of imagined it as an escapism, you know, an escape from from school, but it seems from the way you describe it that it sort of was, in a way, an extension or a mirror image of that with the kind of the the abilities that you needed to have and the trials that you needed to overcome and stuff. I think that's right. So my, my son, who got into it when he was like eight or nine, would stay up late reading the books because it's a nerd extension. The more you know of the complicated rules, and they're really, they're tomes and tomes and volumes and volumes of these rules, the more you can take advantage of them. And so part of what makes the world seem real is the presence of these abstruse rules. And why do you... Um, is it sneered upon in your experience, Ben? Because <clears throat> I've slightly alluded yeah. to that. It's, it's sort of looked at as the geeky, nerdy people who are too weak in real life to have power and therefore they get it in this strange world. I, I think nerds sometimes get a, a bad rap. My experience of nerddom is that they were totally capable of feeling superior to everybody else. Right. <laughs> and so it's not that we were cowering in the corner in the playground thinking that everybody else was looking down on us. We thought that we were the place to be. And I remember vividly, so I spent a year of my life at William Ellis School in North London, and I got in with a gang of role players. And some of them were more serious than I was, and they would subscribe to role-playing magazines, which always started with these letters from bishops <laughs> complaining that 
this game was going to corrupt our souls and send us to the devil. And we just thought it was great that we were standing around at the playground doing nothing except reading complex rule books and that this was you know, turning us into devil worshippers. But you were a jock, weren't you? So in my great stereotyped view of the world, there was kind of the nerds and the jocks, and you're more in the jock camp. You're a giant basketball player. I, I was. I mean, I was, I was tall, in that sense, giant, and I loved basketball and I was pretty good at it, but I was not temperamentally... A jock. I had a fan club in high school. I don't know if I, I may have even um, mentioned this in some <laughs> really? PLS piece before. Wow. Go on. <laughs> and the fan club was made of my nerd friends, and they printed T-shirts. <laughs> and my slogan after the Nike slogan was just, just think about it. And it, it, was, it was not because I was cool. I mean, they would just go to these games, and I would sit on the bench, and yeah, no, I was not. I was not. Were they being ironic? They were being ironic. They were being ironic. Yeah, yeah. they thought it was funny that I was on the team. Oh, that's brilliant. But you did then become, in, in one of those strange twists of fate, then you did become a good basketball player. I was, you know, the truth, I was a good basketball player as a kid. It's just I wasn't socially capable of walking into a locker room full of guys and enforcing my place on the team. I just couldn't do it psychologically. I was, you know, I was too nerdy. And so as I got older, I got better at playing the, the psychological games you need to play to, to be a good Which is a kind of an extension of the same point, isn't it, in some ways? Yeah, and... and I, you know, I was I was comfortable in nerd competition. I just wasn't so comfortable in physical competition. Well, and the psychology of it is interesting as well because you you say that you when you did then go into the D and D world, you tended to favour the, the the smaller characters, the kind of more marginal, the less obviously heroic figures. Yeah, I always imagined myself as a as a hobbit or a dwarf, <laughs> a short guy, and as an outsider. And the, the outsider thing was pretty obvious because I was often an outsider. But have you guys watched Stranger Things? Yes. Because that's a kind of reincarnation of the yeah. DC vibe. Yeah. To be honest, I think that, you know, you get it in comics, you get it in science fiction. We talked about that last week, uh, where it's a, even if it's about strong people or it's about men or women, men or women identify it bec- with it because it's just, it's sort of somehow paying tribute to outsiderdom and that, that, that lures them in. You do see the same thing in, in comics, in Warhammer. Do you know, yeah. if you're familiar with Warhammer? I took my son to a Warhammer shop. Do you know what Warhammer is, dear? Mm, it's where you really. paint little uh, creatures and you roll dice. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, isn't it, Ben? You roll... I would have thought so. I've never played Warhammer, but uh, I assume it's a similar But thing. It's, there's a kind of subculture that's both a bit intimidating. There's a kind of stay away from us, we're better than you. But it can be quite welcoming if people think you come to it seriously. So it's a, it's a sort of subculture that has its attractions. Yeah, and the other thing I think that was interesting about D&D is that they're trying to come up with rules that govern events. And in that way, it was like sports. Sports is this complicated mechanism that determines how luck unfolds, how events unfold. And in D&D, you had dice that did it, but you also had these complicated books that were trying to describe who wins who loses why and that was sort of interesting uh, the the last bit of the article is desperately sad uh, the part of my brain that responds to these illusions is almost dead and is that true for all fictions for you is it just this type of fiction this type of world that, that's created? you know i don't know i mean i i feel a little sad about it too my kids want me to dm for them you know like to lead the campaigns to tell the adventure stories and partly maybe because it's sort of my job to come up with <laughs> events and characters i i just find it very difficult to care enough as much as i used to but i think that's true for all of us right you know the, the stuff that occupied your brain space when you were 15 and it, it was great to have your brain space occupied by that stuff just seems a little thinner now yeah and I, your, your your brain is a little bit emptier i think that's true I, I was quite into heavy metal when i was a kid which is another interesting subculture with similar sort of properties and and it, it's hard to care about music generally as much as you did when you were 15 when you're 39 i don't think 
Yeah, I think so. Or is that just defeatist theory? You, you're looking. I don't looking know. Perplexed. I don't. I don't think so. Really? You still, I mean, I can see what 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 you were saying, Ben, about about um, finding this kind of fiction harder to kind of get into uh, at our age. And I always figured that that maybe was maybe j- just because I don't know the pressures, the more banal pressures of the real world. Uh, are felt just that that bit more when you're this sort of age, but music, no, I don't, I don't feel any less passionately about it part, now. Part of what the appeal of Dungeons and Dragons is that it it hits you at an age when you're not sure what you're going to become, and so you have all this imaginative energy spent on what you could be, and of mm. course you're not going to become a magic user or a dwarven fighter, but still it it appeals to this muscle that you're developing anyway, and then at our age you kind of know what you've become, yeah, and you're stuck, and so you have a a muscle that's not doing that job anymore. Uh, Before you go, um, Ben, can we talk briefly about Kobe Bryant? Because um, you wrote a fantastic piece for for the website about him. Uh, He's, for people who don't know, a a giant of basketball who died alongside his daughter and seven others in a helicopter uh, crash last week. I'm very familiar with with, with Kobe, and um, he's such an interesting character. Um, What do you think of when you think of him when you look back at his, his life? it's hard for me because I always rooted against him, as I said in the piece. He he played on teams that were the enemies of my teams, and so I never wanted his shots to go in. And for years, he just kept beating my hometown San Antonio Spurs, and I hated him. But he was also, you know, he had this troubled past, and he was rehabilitated, and so he's a sort of interesting figure in that sense because, you know, our culture's, still worried about how you can rehabilitate people who have done things that they should not have done. Yeah, he was accused of rape and he wasn't convicted in a criminal court, but he did give a financial settlement to the to, to, to the claimant. And it happened for him at a time when I think the culture maybe had uh, more leeway for yeah. people like him to start again. And he did. Uh, but it, it still he was an awkward person to write about for that piece because it's not that I totally want to celebrate the life of somebody who was accused of doing those things. Well, I think you did it very well. And not, even if we put that to one side, my experience of him, he was a very complicated guy. For large chunks of his career, he wasn't well-loved, even if even if you weren't just rooting against him because of your team. He was a ball right. hog. Uh, he jacked up shots that he that, and often missed them because it was all about him. He had a problem working out his role in the team. He was a sidekick to to Shaq in the early days and then he owned the team but he was often seen as someone who didn't quite get it in lots of ways and and then that changed and I think partly it changed basketball is a beautiful game but if you want to watch beautiful team play watch football it's what football does the core of basketball is this intense one-on-one interaction with the person defending you and in that sense he was the ultimate basketball player because he was so good at that and that's what he wanted from the game he wanted to beat people one-on-one and that kind of self-perfectionism is the word I made up to describe what he was into, that you know, the endless quest to make himself a better version of himself so that he could beat other people with that version is what distinguished his career and partly why he became a hero for the next generation of basketball players who respected that. But then maybe the thing he's best known for now, which is probably a, a, a good place to leave it, is he's best known for the apparent relationship he had with his daughter, you know, sharing what he'd learned, making her the next big basketball player she was just 13 when she died and he's in some ways he's best known now as or one of the things he's known now is is as a dad to those girls one of whom died with him yeah and uh, most of us would think that who we are with our family is the best reflection of who we are as moral human beings and so when we have these public figures that we know only in another light i feel a little awkward commenting on them because he seems to have been a devoted father and he seems to have supported women's basketball in ways that not all NBA stars did.
partly because he had all these daughters and he wanted to see them you know, flourish in the way that he'd been allowed to flourish. Well, it's a great piece. And you also ask people, uh, to, you suggest people go to, to YouTube to, to see him play. So uh, do check that. It's on the TLS website. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons and basketball, Ben. We've managed to talk about... Terrific. I've got nothing left. Uh, yeah, the, this is the <laughs> 1980s for you and we've covered it. Terrific. i got to go teach Daisy Miller now. Okay, you, you go do something not as important like literature. Thank you so much, right. Ben. Thank you very much. Bye. Cheers. Did you know anything about Kobe Bryant? Uh, I knew of him as a as a yeah huge figure. But you didn't know him both, both most... physically and yeah yeah. It's fascinating. And Ben's piece because lots of people in America really wrestled with this because mm. when he died, it was like bolt from the blue. It's, it's it's the biggest thing to happen in American sports in in decades probably. Mm. But then there is this complicated background. And do you and it's, there's broader issues about how do you write about the recently dead? Do mm. you just focus on the achievements? Do you nod to to what happened in the past? And I think Ben sort of got through it but you know it's an interesting point in today's society someone who gets accused of rape pays a financial settlement to the to to to, to the claimant the would victim. it play out the same way I'm yeah almost certain this was yeah. in 2008 or something yeah. like that. i don't think it would do now yeah would it? but it's a great i mean do, do check it out it's a lovely piece When Eve Babbitts was in her teens, she wrote a letter to Joseph Heller, whose novel Catch-22 had not long been published. He was, let's be clear, a pretty big deal. Here's the whole of Babbitts' letter. Dear Joseph Heller, I am a stacked 18-year-old blonde on Sunset Boulevard. I am also a writer. Eve Babbitts. In the following decades, is essay... Is that real? <laughs> that is real. That is real. Amazing. And in the following decades, essay collections, novels and journalism for Esquire, Vogue and Condé Nast Traveller followed. In case you're wondering, Hella wrote back asking to see her work <laughs> and introduced her to his editor, Robert Gottlieb. But you could say that Eve Babbitt's always remained true to that early expression. In other words, Babbitt's has always known how to frame herself to the greatest effect... And that's really saying something, given that from her birth in 1943, she was fully immersed in Los Angeles' art scene, inseparable from the world of parties and celebrities she documented often brilliantly in her fiction and non-fiction. When a freak accident in 1997 made her reclusive, it was only ever a matter of time before she was returned to the stage. The Babitsons, as the editor and writer Emily Gold has termed it, has been going for a few years now. And Megan Martz, who has reviewed a couple of new publications for us, joins us on the line now to fill us in on all of that. Hello, Megan. Hello. It's probably worth recapping us on Babbitt's extraordinary life and milieu, I think. Because, Stig, you're not familiar I'm with say, Am I wrong? I, I, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of her. Is that terrible? Is you that... might. Had you heard of her origin story? No, no I, none I, of that. No, I, funny enough, once I read this piece, Megan, I was in a bookshop and I saw the picture, the Duchamp ah. uh, and Babbitt's naked playing chess picture that you mentioned. Okay, so we, we yeah. need to recap on this. Yeah, Megan, exactly. take it away. Tell the deal. <laughs> Treat me like the ignoramus I am. Eve Babbitt's was born to two, her parents were kind of part of LA's Bohemia. She was born in the early 40s. You know, Igor Stravinsky was her godfather. Her parents were friends with a lot of writers and musicians. And so she was kind of part of these creative communities from her her very birth. And in 1963, when she was about 20, she went with her parents to an opening of a Marcel Duchamp exhibition at the Pasadena Art Museum. And while she was there, her sister's date, actually, who was a photographer, proposed that she pose with the Duchamp uh, nude playing chess. Uh, so she did, and actually in the new collection that used to be charming, which is the collection of her 
articles and essays she has an essay about that <laughs> um, I think it's called I was a naked pawn for art where she talks about the the experience of doing it um, but the resulting pictures ended up being really famous you know she's sitting there completely naked across across from Duchamp who's fully clothed and they're just playing chess and I guess one of the things that's interesting is that she says I was a naked pawn for art which puts her in a very vulnerable sort of used position but it wasn't strictly it didn't strictly happen that way I mean she had intent in that as well she there was the story of uh, the guy who had curated this exhibition it was a you know a serious coup for him getting uh, Marcel Duchamp to be there um she he was married and had been ignoring her and she did that to essentially steal the show yes absolutely and she has in in that essay there's a part where he comes into the room and is just like really surprised so she kind of gets one over on him and there's an interesting interpretation in um lily anolik actually i'm realizing i don't know how to pronounce her name i have it yeah, I would say Lily Analik. Do you know what? I, I don't mean to digress, but that's such a... We should never feel ashamed about oh, this. Oh, totally. Because it means you've learned it by reading, and that's the best way to learn anything. So I think that's fine. It just means yeah. you've, you've seen the name but never heard it. I think that's totally cool. Well, thank you for the reassurance. Well, I don't know. Um. To, I, I knows that. Lily, I'm going to say, OK, I'll crush it, and then no, everyone else will feel better. Lily Analik is how I would say it. Excellent. She has a passage in her biography of Eve Babbitts where she talks about how she was so instrumental in constructing that image you know she's not looking at Duchamp at all she's totally focused on the game and she talks about how you know if anything if they if she would have slipped up at all if there would have been any sign of of discomfort or an averted gaze it wouldn't have worked at all so I thought that that was one of the my favorite passages of that book talking about her role in, in constructing that iconic image which of course is something that she's really skilled at. Is she a great writer? Is she a great figure? I mean, where, where should she be in the... Because you mentioned Joan Didion, who is clearly an elevated figure, and rightly so. Is, is, does she stand on her own merits as, as a writer and an, and an artist? Uh, you know, the, the Didion comparison is interesting, and it's one that comes up a lot. Didion helped give her her start, really, by sending one of her articles to an editor at Rolling Stone, and, and that's kind of what helped her get started publishing writing. So, yeah, obviously they're both really identified with California, but, you know, Didion is so, her writing is so taut. <laughs> her portraits of California can sometimes be almost, you know, I mean, they're so disillusioned, whereas Babbitt's is really, I think fizzy is a, is a word that comes up a lot when people try to describe her writing. It's really kind of bouncy and lush and sort of the polar opposite of of Didion. And then, you know, she obviously has a a totally different relationship to California, one that isn't really (laughs) disillusioned at all. It's it's kind of all in on the appreciation of of beauty and and pleasure. I guess you could summarise if to to the paranoia of Didion's White Album, you you have the pleasure of Babbitt's slow days, fast company. So there was always that kind of that, that... that tension do you think that this massive revival that we're seeing now if that's not too much of an exaggeration it is a pretty hefty revival that Eve Babbitt's revival do you think that it's it's justified do you think that she'll last as long as Didion that's a really interesting question I um I get a lot of pleasure out of reading both writers I'm glad to have them both available to read 
I, I guess on a personal level, Didion kind of sticks in my mind a little bit more. You love Didion, don't that. you? Think? I love I love Didion, and I'm I'm sort of thinking about. <laughs> and what do you think of Babbitts? I I like Eve Babbitts. Yeah. I do. I think she's, and I think this is the consensus. She's better. At, she's a better memoirist than the novelist. I've never enjoyed her novels. The Sex and Rage. I I I didn't really like. Have you read Have you read that one, Megan? The Sex and I have Rage. I haven't read Sex and Rage. No. So that came out in '79, which was only like five years after. Eve's Hollywood, which was a really autobiographical novel, um, and it already sort of felt quite tired by by then. I suppose my impression of Eve Babbitts is that she, for a, a relatively brief period of time, she really got it. She really framed her world and and brought it to life. You know, you you mentioned fizzy Megan as a word that you would use in conjunction with her a lot. Another one is fabulous. Forever, everyone's always talking about how fabulous it was, and I f- sort of feel that that got quite tired. Quite quite quickly for me maybe that was just she wasn't right for me when I was when I was reading her I think it's also interesting that she's having the revival at this time that she is you know in the me too moment Eve Babbitt's in the me too moment's quite an interesting again framing I suppose yeah absolutely she's sort of the opposite well, yeah it's not the, the obvious <laughs> no not at all she kind of leans into objectification i guess you could say with with great pleasure and, and gusto and does that give her a, does, does that give her agency i mean the point you made about the picture you know that's one way of dealing with it isn't it she she's she seems like a strong figure she doesn't seem like she's put upon she's 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 in some ways calling the shots it does sometimes go a little far there was one there's one essay in the new collection and, and it was in playboy and that's another thing about reading this essay of magazine or articles that she published in so many different magazines, sometimes you can sort of feel the editorial hand or you wonder how much the voice of the magazine or its editorial mission had to do with how the article came out. But this article in particular was in Playboy and it's about dancing. And I I wanted to believe while reading it that there was some sort of wink, wink, because she's talking about how great it is to feel a man's strong arms around you shall i i'll just quote it unbelievably dated stuff. she says oh, um, she what? says it's a scientific fact that once a woman feels a man's strong arms around her she feels a lot better about life in general and can't complain much at all we're not we're not buying that yeah well <laughs> <laughs> and i think it, at, at points like that it's sort of her her leaning into those sort of antiquated gender role sort of jumps the shark I think at, at certain points. It's difficult to tell whether there's there's a naivety perhaps born of a very I suppose very privileged uh, background or and maybe connectedly it's a social conservatism I suppose that you can actually trace from the beginning to the end in her work and she stopped writing in 1997 when she had this terrible accident and that's a whole other story perhaps for another time. It all sort of I don't, and I don't know if this is an experience that you've had reading her it kind of because she deals with the same subjects over and over mm. in different ways, it has a tendency to kind of blur together, at least in my mind. There's this huge body of writing, but it feels like by dipping into it here and there, you can get almost as good of a sense of it yeah. as you can reading huge quantities of it. Well, that's a good, recommend- that's right. that's a good recommendation, uh, Megan, and I might go off and do that, actually. Uh, Megan Mart, thank you very much indeed. Absolutely, thank you. Can I point you in the direction of what to read, though? Yeah, rather than I just- quite like it. She's very LA. Yeah, yeah. Eve's Hollywood's a good place to start. That was her first. That was 74. Yeah. And it's and American. Then, it's had a gonzo journalism. Uh, some of it. Slow days and fast um, fast characters. Is fast that, company. It's for Fast Company. Why yeah. can't I ever remember that? Yeah. Um, 
that's really LA sort of journalism essays and that's really of its time and that's the one that's really interesting to read if you read Didion and, and, and read that Because she's doing the same time. Huntress Thompson's doing stuff at, at this time as well. Didion's doing it. It's kind of like a bit of a mini golden era of of that type of journalistic. Totally. And one of the great things about her is that she, she doesn't take herself seriously and she has great one-liners. She's she's so sharp. In fact, uh, do you remember when Gwai- uh, Dwight Garner had, um, we published his, a bit of his commonplace yeah. book, there were a few Eve Babbitt's quotes in that. Who were they? See, it's one of those names that I've obviously got somewhere yeah. in my mind but just not not pulled back out. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting how, you know, we go in these cycles of, 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 of moments and revivals and all of that sort of stuff and it's just interesting that she's having it now and apparently... She's sort of moving, or has always been, you know, I, I said social conservative. She's always had a thread of that running through her work, but apparently she's she's quite right wing now, really? <laughs> which is quite interesting, given the, the mm. circles that she moved in. Um, Happen, happens, happens to people with, as they age, apparently, Theo. Yeah. Yeah. I'll leave that there. <laughs> uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Megan Martz, Ben Markovitz and Carol Emerson. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. This current one takes you on a tour of all matters Russian, plus an excoriation of the film Judy and why restaurants are so over. That was commissioned by Thea, obviously. Next week, poetry and Ulipo. Perfect. We're always mentioning Brilliant. Ulipo on this podcast. If you don't know what it is... You can find out next week. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.